the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast. We'll help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone, I'm your host Michael Camp. The Spiritual Brew Pub is a safe haven for former conservative Christians who are perhaps coming to terms with their experience and maybe don't know exactly where to land. We're also a safe haven for people who are just questioning. Maybe you're still in the evangelical movement or some form of uh, religion and you're questioning your faith and you're wondering, uh, is there a different way to look at things? So, welcome everyone. Today's podcast is on the Bible. Uh, The title is A Record of Humanity's Moral Development, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So, um, let me start with... Uh, a story. More than 15 years ago, when I was coming out of evangelicalism, I always struggled with how to reconcile parts of the Bible. When I started to study history, however, there were several mysteries that I solved about the Bible that totally blew me away and helped me finally make sense of it. I'm going to share those with you today on today's podcast. So, buckle your seatbelts and let's take a ride together off the mythological Bible Belt interstate and onto the road less traveled historic Bible byway. How's that for an intro? <laughs> the Bible is a mystery to a lot of people. If you're an evangelical, um, you're told it's altogether the Word of God and inerrant, but many secretly doubt that. You know, you see the inconsistencies in it. Uh, And that's why you doubt it. Or if you're not religious at all, you're not a Christian or you're not Jewish or whatever, you may wonder, what is the Bible all about? Because you can't accept it as an errant. You see or have heard about the inconsistencies and inaccuracies. So you think it's irrelevant because of that. It's just too confusing. Why should I pay attention to a contradictory, often inaccurate religious book, you may may think? Today, I hope to help people understand what the Bible is from an historical perspective, and my goal is for you to gain two things. One, an understanding for why it cannot be considered altogether true in its history and its statements about God, but also, number two, why it shouldn't be tossed out as irrelevant. The reason is that that history shows us the Bible is more like a record of humanity's moral development, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But gradually, going from a lot of ugly to some bad to mostly good with a smattering of good and bad mixed throughout. For example, in the first book of the Bible, there's this disturbing genocidal flood story. But at the same time, in the same book, there's an encouraging restorative story about Joseph and his brothers. So uh, there's a mixed bag, and we're going to address why that is. Um, So knowing these two points is helpful in order to learn some lessons of biblical history, and I think it helps us grow morally and spiritually as a global community. Um, When you kind of have this paradigm shift and you look at the Bible in this different way, some things really rise to the top. Um, the trajectory of the teachings in the Bible, which is, is like mostly bad and some good in the beginning, moving to mostly good and some bad, that trajectory helps us identify lessons for our time, 
lessons that can help us leave behind things like retribution and violence and war and move towards uh, embracing love and restoration and peace um, toward each other and in the world. So let me just list some books. Um, I'm not going to have a lot of quotes here. I'll have a couple, but uh, I'll list some books that I got the uh, material and the insights for this podcast. Um, I like to get uh, sources from all over the map. So if you you might you might uh, recognize some of these people as some of them still maybe on the conservative end, maybe some of them very liberal. So, but you'll you'll get a feel for where I'm getting this material in the study of history. Uh, William Countryman wrote a book called Biblical Authority and Biblical Tyranny. Uh, N.T. Wright has a really good article called How Can the Bible Be Authoritative? Derek Flood wrote uh, a book recently, came out a few years ago, Disarming Scripture. That's a very good book. Excellent. Michael Harden wrote an excellent book called Mimic Theory and Biblical Interpretation. Short and easy to get through and, and very insightful. Marcus Borg, one of my, um, I, f- I feel like he's a friend of mine, the late Marcus Borg. I, I met him once and he endorsed my first book. He wrote a book called Reading the Bible for the First Time, Taking the Bible Seriously but Not Literally. Uh, Christian Smith wrote a book called The Bible Made Impossible. And finally, John Dominic Crossan wrote a book, um, very catchy title, How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian. It's very interesting. So let's, let's get started. There's a lot of good things in the Bible, um, but one of the main things I'm still learning as an ex-evangelical uh, who researches history and biblical scholarship um, is that in order to understand and appreciate the good things in the Bible— One has to understand and reject the bad things in the Bible and condemn the ugly things. Otherwise, you'll get a warped view of spirituality that leads to harmful religion. This is the problem with modern American conservative and traditional Christianity. It doesn't differentiate the good, the bad, and the ugly in the Bible and in Christian history, and this leads to harming and abusing people spiritually. Um, this, This differentiation between these Uh, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is actually uh, very important to understand what the Bible really means. Michael Harden um, said in his book that I cited, the contradictions in the Bible, he's talking about, the contradictions are precisely the key to understanding the Bible. So um, by studying the Bibles and human history, Um, I came to a solid conclusion that most people come to when they look under the hood. Contrary to what conservative Christians taught me, the Bible is not an altogether unified message of God's Word that accurately portrays the character of God and history, for that matter, not to mention science. Um, And neither is it a timeless rule book. Rather, it's a narrative that doesn't always agree with itself. It's a collection of dissenting views about God and Jewish and ancient history. It's not inerrant or infallible. Uh, When one finally gets to the point of recognizing this, then one can finally decide which dissenting views make sense and are perhaps, if you're a person of faith, likely inspired by a loving God, and which views are merely a record of humanity's violent, sacrificial religion. Now, of course, evangelicals and fundamentalists vehemently object to this line of reasoning. Um, They will tell you that the Bible has a coherent and unified message and is internally consistent and universally applicable to all. But in order to do this, they have to allow for cognitive dissonance, the position that accommodates inconsistent and contradictory beliefs and faith statements. So as one evangelical pastor warned, God is a compassionate father who loves us, but he's also a wrathful judge who may damn us. So according to this view, God both loves and condemns. He both restores and is is restorative and retributive. He's both forgiving with conditions and unforgiving. 
He's both peaceful and violent. So they have such doctrines. Um, I mean, this this kind of view leads to believing in such doctrines as, you know, heaven is for a minority of people and hell is for a majority. Most of the human race, depending on who go, does the math, uh, will be going to hell. Um, people believing people things um, believing things like um, people are either the elect or chosen. Um, uh, and then others are totally depraved and lost. Uh, having both a warring God who kills and conquers, like in the book of Joshua, and a suffering God who lays down his life, as in Jesus. Um, having a God who never limits forgiveness, uh, but forgives 70 times, seven times, and even forgives one's murderers because they know not what they do, which is what actually Jesus taught. And at the same time, they believe in a God who only forgives under very strict conditions, like only forgives someone if an innocent victim like Jesus is tortured and murdered and his sacrifices accept it as the punishment humanity deserves to appease an angry God. What I'm arguing is you can't have it both ways, as I'm, I'm going to demonstrate to you in these podcasts. Um, God is either restorative in nature or he's retributive in nature. He really can't be both. Uh, if he's both, we have a schizophrenic God. Now, keep in mind that neither is it true uh, what some secularists or, or atheists claim, um, that the Bible is altogether unreliable, that there is um, uh, there's this all-or-nothing black-and-white mentality that uh, conservative Christians have promoted so much that it has rubbed off on our society. And this is the notion that if the Bible has conflicting, inaccurate, or unscientific views, then none of it can be trusted. So it's kind of an all-or-nothing. You know, you either believe the whole thing is the Word of God or you just don't trust it at all. It's unreliable that we need to toss the whole collection out altogether then. But um, this, too, is really cognitive dissonance in my mind. It doesn't make sense, nor does it fit history. There's a third way to look at the Bible that does make the most sense and fits history, as I argue, and even fits social science and anthropology. If the Bible is contradictory, you basically have three choices. One, you can try to harmonize it like evangelicals do and come out with a schizophrenic God who needs a therapist and you um, hold views that are not backed by science and history, etc. Number two, you can reject it altogether, as as I was saying. It's confusing. It's irrelevant. Let's just ignore it and lose. The problem is that you lose the wisdom that rings true in parts of the Bible. And then the third view is you can accept it, but accept it as a record of theological debate about human morality and decide which views win the debate. You do what uh, Michael Harden calls content criticism, not merely exegetical or historical criticism, um, which actually just means Um, that type of criticism is when you're only concerned with the original texts and the original meaning, which is actually a very good thing to do. But we also have to do um, content criticism. Because if you don't, you ignore the ethics or the accuracy of the content. So in this approach, um, you can decide what rises to the top, what is truly good, what's really inspirational, what rings true as divinely inspired so if uh, possibly what sinks to the bottom as unethical and harmful in other words you can use your mind and conscience to discern what is good in the bible compared to what is bad and what is ugly in the bible and then learn from the good so um this actually this view actually has the backing of history as i said um This is actually how the first writers and editors of the Bible approached it. Um, The Jewish prophets, for example, and the writers um, and Jesus and his earliest followers had 
a very the same attitude. Um, it's an attitude that Derek Flood calls faithful questioning of Scripture. Um, they did not approach Scripture like evangelicals do today, who approach it with unquestioning obedience. Uh, you have to accept everything you read. Um, no, people were actually free to question and change the narrative. And I'm going to give you some examples in just a moment. Now, the big objection to this is the um, you can't cherry pick the Bible defense. I hear people, I hear it ringing in my ears. But Michael, people will say you can't pick and choose what you like and dislike in the Bible. You must accept it all or nothing. This, of course, is complete balderdash. Of course you can pick and choose what you think is good in the Bible. That is what everyone does with every book, every narrative, every history. Who gives religionists the right to insist one must accept everything in the Bible or else they are rebellious? Does that sound like fair-minded thinking? Does that sound like the way a loving God would treat people? Don't question anything, and if you do, you're rebellious, and then I'm against you? No, everyone has a right to pick and choose what we see as inspirational and what is not. And as I have explained in my books and as I'm learning from history, picking and choosing is how the Bible was compiled to begin with and how it was used by the Jews and the prophets and Jesus and his earliest followers. So uh, let me give you some examples um, in the Old Testament, um, the Jews, uh, they actually, through history, picked what sacred texts they accepted and liked and um, liked the most. Uh, for example, the Sadducees, they only accepted the, the five books of the Torah and rejected the prophets. The Greek Jews and the earliest Christians, um, before the New Testament was compiled, chose the book called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament and includes um, uh, 14 apocryphal books that were later tossed out by Protestants centuries later. So they accepted those books as sacred scripture. The Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers considered this scripture. They actually quoted from that Greek um, uh, version of the Old Testament. The Essenes, they were a separatist apocalyptic group, uh, a group of Jews that um, uh, are known for the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery, but uh, they had sacred other sacred texts that they picked and chose. And one of them is a book called First Enoch, and the writer of the book of Jude in the New Testament chose to quote that book in his, in his uh, letter. So history tells us that the Jews did not have a canon. Canon, if you hear that word, it just means a definitive list. They didn't have a definitive list of sacred books throughout its history until after the Christian era, in the second century or so, when they finally decided to compile one. And it was in response to the Christians who were starting to identify Jewish books that they wanted. And so up until then, there was always a debate about which books and sacred texts should be considered their scriptures. The other thing to recognize is in the Jewish scriptures, um, it's really a record of dissent in the content. And most people don't don't get this because you're taught that the whole thing is you know altogether true and it's never contradictory. <laughs> but the Jewish prophets, um, people like um, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah, uh, they all critiqued and even mocked the Jewish sacrificial system. So there was this complex system of sacrifice that was supposedly instituted by God through Moses in the book of Leviticus. And at first, sacrifices were done on various altars and later were done in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Um, there are actually two temples, one built by King Solomon, one by, built by King Herod. Um, but So the sacrificial system, very complex, and it eventually got into the temple. But there was much dissent over this system. The prophets, um, they kept critiquing it. Um, they, you know, Hosea said, um, God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus quoted that a couple times. 
Um, the prophet Isaiah said, what are your sacrifices to me? I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Um, the prophet Micah argues against the sacrifice uh, system when he said, with what shall I come when I bow before God? Should I come to God with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? He has shown you, O mankind, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Not sacrifice is the implication of the whole uh, passage. Not sacrifice, but just merely to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And even the Psalms, um, there's a verse that blatantly disregards it. It says, you, meaning God, do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. So that's just a good example. Oh, one more. Jeremiah, amazing um, verse. He actually directly questioned whether it was God that set up the whole sacrificial system. Uh, Jeremiah 7, 21 or so, he says, The God of Israel says, For when I brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt, I did not command them about burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, the problem with that verse is that it's it's been tampered with. Translators of most of the English versions added the word just or merely before the word command. So it reads, I did not merely command them about burnt offerings and sacrifices. But that word is not in the original Hebrew. So um, that's just a good example of how uh, theological bias creeps into when people translate the Bible and things are added to try to harmonize things that are obviously contradictions. But the original, Jeremiah is contradicting uh, the, the God that set up this whole system. Uh, which matches exactly what the other prophets were saying about the sacrificial system. So even within the Old Testament itself, we see dissenting views uh, like this one. And sacrifice is, is one good example. So let's move on to the New Testament. What, what about that? Um, again, this is a, uh, a history. Um, when you look at history, how the New Testament was compiled there's a lot of dissent going on. Uh, it didn't just fall from the sky altogether and everyone accepted the, the New Testament. Um, for centuries, the earliest Christians debated about what books to include as their sacred texts. Um, just as the Jewish communities didn't insist that everyone accept their list of books or else they were judged as heretical, earliest Jesus followers didn't either. Um Later, centuries later, there there was a thing called heresy hunting, um, but at the very beginning, that wasn't the case. Uh, they originally um, uh, they accepted different Christian communities had preferences for what books and letters they liked and accepted. Of course, for decades there was no New Testament, and then when it started to emerge, people began to collect some writings, and they had different lists of writings, and some of them didn't even wind up in the New Testament we have today, and others uh, rejected what was in the New Testament. So, for example, most accepted the four Gospels, but it wasn't like you had to accept all of them. Uh, the Eastern Christians preferred John, and the Western Christians preferred Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or one of those. Um, there were serious disputes about books like Jude, Hebrews, Second Peter, Second and Third John, and especially Revelation. Um, those weren't universally accepted. Some people thought they shouldn't be considered our sacred text. Uh, there are other books most people have never heard of that many Orthodox believers considered scripture, like the Gospel of the Hebrews. Uh, there are several other gospel stories. Um, the Clement Letters and the Shepherd of Hermas. So there was a lot of other books that people considered good and orthodox and that never wound up in the New Testament. Now, of course, there was also some crazy books out there too, but this was the environment. There was a, you know, a conglomeration of, of all kinds of scriptures and people were reading them and, and deciding what they felt uh, was the best for their Christian community, what they felt 
followed the uh, original oral tradition of Jesus and the apostles, etc. So a definitive list of the New Testament books did not finalize until the late 4th century. And until then, there was um, dispute, there were debates, there were preferences, but there wasn't a dogmatic list everyone had to accept or else. Um, Moreover, what we're going to find is that in the Jewish tradition and Jesus' way of teaching and Paul's way, um, they allowed for a selective way of quoting the Old Testament and disputing portions of it while affirming or reinterpreting other parts of it. So there was a debate going on. So let's look at uh, the big elephant in the room as well. Okay, yeah, yeah, we can pick and choose. You made your case, but how do you do that? And how do you know what is good to choose and what is not? Um, so the, the answer to that question is, is that you, it's best to have a good logical historical method of picking and choosing what scholars would call a good humanutic. And that that means uh, a good way to interpret it through, uh, you know, um, tools that are rational and make sense and fit history and uh, are you use a lens to look through. Um, so you shouldn't, you know, pick and choose on a whim. You should follow a rationale for how you recognize what's good. And the humanutic, I believe, is the most historically grounded is to look at everything in the Bible through the lens of the developing love ethic that began to grow in the Jewish prophetic literature and culminated in Jesus and um, and the Apostle Paul. And I'll get into that a little bit in a little bit when we look at some actual scriptures. But it's important to recognize that this love ethic grew during the Bible's trajectory. It wasn't there consistently. It was only there in bits and pieces. Uh, the story of Joseph in Genesis I mentioned, for example, that's a good, I think, a good example of the love ethic. Um, but it's mixed with other things that are very disturbing. Um, uh, uh, the prophets, when they called out for social justice among the widows, orphans, the poor, and the marginalized, that was a good example of the love ethic starting to shine through. Um, but some of these are actually minority narratives in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament about the retribute of God. Um, and then in the New Testament, it's kind of like the other way around. The majority narrative is more restorative, forgiving. Um, and the minority narrative is uh, retribution. So um, let's look at one big example of uh, a major dissenting view in the Bible. Um, we've, we've looked at sacrifices a little bit, but the sacrificial system. Um, but I want to look at um, what I call the, uh, the, the record of violence and, and, and what I call pro-death approach uh, to, uh, um, to, to God. I call it violent retribution and pro-death to appease a troubled or angry God. Um, and when you read these with an open mind, there's really no way you can uh, conclude otherwise. Um, there's some really disturbing things going on. So um, let's just take a look at some scriptures here and see what they tell us. So let's start with Genesis 6. Most of what I'm going to say is a quote from this passage. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and all the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. Um, so this is that narrative in Genesis about the flood. Um, what, the, what is the response to the evil inclinations and wickedness and violence that God saw on the earth? The response was to just wipe people out. 
All people, young and old, children, infants, even the unborn and pregnant women. This was the pro-death approach. Um, He didn't mention that God was necessarily angry, wrathful, but he was troubled. He was grieving. He resorted to violence to solve this problem. And mercy is only extended to uh, Noah's family. So that's the narrative of the flood. And one thing to draw to your attention is that in these narratives, what I call pro-death narratives, there's always some kind of justification for the violence. So the justification here is that God saw that basically everyone just had evil in their heart all the time. And because of that, there's no reason to let them live. So, I mean, just think about that for a moment. But that's the reason why uh, uh, this is justified. You find something that kind of makes people um, inhuman. And if they are inhuman, then you can justify violence against them. So um, Deuteronomy 6 and 7 is the next one. Um, Right before the Israelites were going into the land of Canaan, where they were told that they should take the nations there and establish a home there after they came out of Egypt. Um, Moses told the people, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Very amazing. Uh, (laughs) That's what God supposedly told Moses. Destroy them all. Show them no mercy. So then you you keep reading and you come to Joshua. And this is the record of the actual taking of the land. And there's many cities that the Israelite armies um, basically just um, attack, uh, win the battle, take over the city, and destroy everyone. And here's, here's some examples. In Joshua 6 to 11, uh, you know the story of Jericho probably. Uh, the walls collapse. Um, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread. So that was the first city that they destroyed. You notice that they devoted the city to the Lord. That's a theme that comes up, that there's this belief that in doing this destruction and 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 uh, massacring people this was a devotion they were devoting this city and these people to the lord so um what happened in the other cities well you can read through those um, chapters in joshua uh, that's basically saying almost the same thing for every single city it lists a whole a bunch of them the city of Ai was the next city when Israel had finished killing all the men of Ai in the fields and in the wilderness where they had chased them, and when every one of them had been put to the sword, all the Israelites returned to Ai and killed those who were in it. Twelve thousand men and women fell that day, all the people of Ai. Um, there are other cities. Here's just a, an example. Almost every city has it says something like this. They took the city and put it to the sword, together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors. They totally destroyed it. But all the people they put to the sword until they, um, until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. That, that phrase comes out over and over again. Um, another interesting thing that you noticed in this is that they attribute God actually um, uh, getting involved in directing or inciting the Israel Israel's enemies. It said, um, uh, 
God hardened the hearts of Israel's enemies. Here's a quote. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts, meaning he's talking about the kings of these cities, to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So there's that um, two things. God was actually inciting people to wage war with Israel so that he might destroy them without mercy. So that is the character of God according to Joshua. Um, about 300 years later, I believe, um, in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, one of these tribes that they never did encounter during the Canaanite conquest uh, comes up on the scene, and um, they're called the Amalekites. And this is a quote from 1 Samuel 15. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Uh, that's that uh, disturbing verse in First Samuel. Um, uh, another verse uh, that's mixed in here. Um, it just gives you an idea of of, of uh, how they looked upon these people. Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them. So there's the narrative. Um, these people are demonized. Um, they may have been, you know. They may have had their problems. There may have been violence. There may have been all kinds of things going on in that society. But the resolution, according to this narrative, was to attack these cities, uh, kill people, leave no survivors, women and children and infants, and of course, pregnant women would have been among them, so the unborn as well, and just wipe them out. Um, not just the soldiers, but every human and all the animals as well, everything that breathes, leave no survivors, take no prisoners, etc. And these um, uh, stories were, were describing this as devoting the cities to God. So this is violent, sacrificial religion. It's even a form of human sacrifice, murder, and even genocide. This is the God that was in the minds of the people who had accepted this narrative as scripture and the word of God. Um, there, was, there wasn't a call for these non-Jewish people and these pagans and these idolaters to change and to, for God to have mercy on them and, and, and exhort them to see a better way, if that was the right thing to say. There was none of that. It was just destruction. It was the same narrative as the flood. Wipe them all out. Um, with very few exceptions. Noah was an exception. In the Canaan conquest, there was a couple exceptions. Rahab the prostitute was an exception because she helped the Jews. So it was definitely hate and kill your enemies and uh, love your friends, but hate and kill your enemies. So that was the narrative in um, the uh, conquest uh, of Israel of Canaan. So what I want to do now is I want to contrast that to the what I call the nonviolent, non-retribution, and love for enemies uh, of Jesus and even Paul. And I'll I'll quote a few verses for you so you really can see the contrast. So the story goes that um, when Jesus started his um, his work in the villages uh, of Palestine. He came, he went to Nazareth. Um, uh, it doesn't really matter what village it was, but the story is that he went to Nazareth, got, went to a synagogue, and he read this scripture to the people. It's from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. And what you don't normally see, I never saw it. No one ever taught me this when I was in evangelicalism. (laughs) 
that Jesus actually left out the very end of the verse at the very end. And he left out the phrase, um, and the day of vengeance of our God. Right. So in other words, the whole thing was saying, I'm going, uh, the Spirit of God has sent me uh, to proclaim good news, but also to announce the day of vengeance of our God. And, um, uh, you know, scholars agree that historically first century Jews would know this passage and they would know he left out that part that matches. It matches the narrative of of what I just read you, the flood story and the Joshua narrative. It's, oh yeah, right, God's going to come, we got good news, but there's going to be a day of vengeance. God's going to wipe out our enemies. God's going to, um, you know, rescue us from our enemies. That was what most first century Jews um, believed God was like. So, yeah, he's going to help us and bless us, but he's going to kill our enemies. So, um then what happens is uh, Jesus begins to engage with the people in the synagogue. And actually, we think that that passage, um, uh, uh, scholars think that that passage was mistranslated in, in one part. And that uh, people were actually upset with him in that passage right from the time that he did, left out that phrase. And Jesus starts giving examples of of God helping the Gentiles. Um, he talks about Elijah and Elisha and how they helped a Gentile w- widow and a Gentile leper. And, you know, there were actually others that they could have helped in Israel, but they chose to help the Gentiles. Um, Jesus said, like, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And then, People got really angry with him at that point. You go to Luke chapter 4, you can read this whole narrative. Uh, they go, what? What are you talking about? Why were they so angry? And the reason why they were so angry is because they believed these Old Testament narratives that God told them, told the Israelites to treat the Gentiles like their enemies and kill them and and uh, be against them and Pray that God would destroy them eventually, etc., etc. So Jesus starts to challenge this narrative, this violent narrative, and people get pissed off. I mean, the, 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 the verse actually says all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. So their response was actually to kill him, to murder Jesus, to fit the violent, sacrificial religion that they uh, had accepted. So this was the very beginning of Jesus starting to challenge the violent narrative of God. Um, As you go on and read the New Testament, you'll see very clearly that this comes out. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, of course, is part of the Sermon on the Mount, as they call it. And he says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, which is a quote from Exodus. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand them over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So this is a direct contradiction of the um, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the retribution um, commands you you retribute if someone does something to you that's harmful and evil then you have a right and you are even commanded to um, come against them in the same way an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth uh, um, but what Jesus is doing is he's questioning that he's dissenting he's disagreeing um, this is a direct contradiction to the flood story. Uh, it says, don't, he says, don't resist an evil person. Um, you know, let them get away with it and even, and even be nice to them. Put back in their face kind or nonviolent acts. This is a direct contradiction to retribution. Um, 
Jesus is calling people, rather than treat these people like your enemies and and be against them and uh, practice retribution, rather try to restore the relationship. Don't exact revenge or retributive justice. So again, Jesus goes on. He has the teaching in that same passage. You heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And we can see that clearly in, in the Joshua passages. You were, they were told by God to hate their enemy and even as far as killing them, all the, all the people. Um, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be a whole person, therefore, as your heavenly Father is whole. Um, that verse is usually translated, uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's another bad tra- translation. Uh, it really doesn't mean perfect in that sense. It means be a whole person, be consistent um, the way God is consistent. Um, another um, addition, a little tweak on this is in Luke chapter 6. There's another version of this teaching, and Jesus puts it this way. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So now you see, even more so, the direct contradiction to Joshua, where it's said blatantly, God told us not to have mercy on these people. And now Jesus is saying, no, be merciful because God is merciful. So that's a direct contradiction. Um, uh, he wants, uh, Jesus is telling us he wants to imitate this merciful God to treat people, even enemies, like we would like to be treated. This is a complete and direct contradiction to the violent narratives uh, that we just went over. Um now, there's actually uh, a very interesting passage uh, in, where is it? Oh, I forgot which gospel it's in. But um, Oh, it's in Luke. But this, this is a really good example of Jesus actually confronts a actual Bible verse um, of violence. It uh, comes from 2 Kings chapter 1. The prophet Elijah uh, brings a message to the king of Israel and to make a long story short, um, uh, the king sent a captain with a contingent of 50 soldiers um, three different times, sent them to Elijah to inquire about Elijah's prophecy. He made some prophecy, and the king was challenging the prophet. So two of those times, this is what happened according to King Second Kings chapter 1. He sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said of him, said to him, Man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. So, um... Actually, since it happened two times, and there were a contingent of 51 men, I guess, a total of 102 men were killed and destroyed by fire. So, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, fast forward, Jesus is going through Samaria, and according to Luke chapter 9, on his way to Jerusalem, 900 years later, the people of Samaria did not welcome him. So, this was kind of like an insult to someone who was a representative of God. So what do two of his disciples, how do they respond? They say this, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them, even as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then some of the Greek manuscripts Jesus elaborates and continues and says, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for I did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So here we have Jesus rebuking the very idea of emulating the prophet Elijah when he destroyed uh, 
uh, a contingent of, of soldiers. Um, the Samaritans um, were actually the enemies of the Jews uh, with a running feud uh, between them that had roots going back all the way to the time of Elijah. So um, Jesus is rebuking his disciples. They had not learned that is not the spirit of, of God. To, to resort to destroying human lives in response to hostility, whatever it is, idolatry or disobedience, that's not the real heart of God, according to what Jesus is teaching. So he rebuked this voice, um, and, he, and, and, and he was recognizing that that voice was coming actually through the Jewish scriptures, and he, he rejected it. Um, let me give you a couple more examples, and then we'll just tie it all up here. I'm trying to, in this particular one, I'm trying to get you to see uh, very clearly the violent narrative versus the nonviolent narrative and why we can't accept both of those narratives as from the same source of a loving God. Uh, Romans chapter 12, um, Paul has some similar things to say. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Carefully consider what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Uh, do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for God's wrath. Um, it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He quoted uh, one of the prophets there, but I'll, I'm going to make a commentary about that in a moment. And then he says, and he actually quotes the pro, um, Proverbs. So he was finding a non-violent narrative in the Old Testament. And it says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap burning, heap burning coals on his head. Do n and then the end of quote there. And then he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So with the exception of that little thing about the vengeance is mine, says God, that is definitely a contradiction of the uh, narratives that we read earlier. So let me just explain that. Um, it seems to me that uh, um, Paul was um, trying to uh, make an argument to his hearers uh, who still believed in these violent narratives. Um, so he was trying to say, hey, remember the scriptures also say this and God says, if you believe in an angry God who takes vengeance, you, he, he told you once, don't do it yourself, I'll do it, right? So that was the point he was making. And I don't think it's really fair to um, say that uh, God still, uh, Paul still believed in that angry vengeance narrative of, 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 uh, of God because just the chapter before Romans 11 um, uh, he, he says, he concludes his argument by saying, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all, which of course is again, a direct contradiction to what God told, um, uh, Noah and, and Joshua don't have mercy on them at all. And so this is total opposite, a counter narrative, um, to the flood story and the Canaan conquest. Uh, those stories tell us don't have mercy, kill your enemies, um, but this narrative of Jesus and Paul says, have mercy, just like God is merciful, don't practice eye-for-eye eye retribution, and be kind to the ungrateful and even the wicked. So they do not scapegoat people and demonize people. They are telling us to... Uh, Love your enemies. So these are, um, there are other examples of dissenting views in the Bible. Um, um, let me give you just a couple of them before we uh, wrap this up. Um, but this ones uh, that I gave, uh, the two major ones I gave, one on sacrifice and one on the violent narratives versus nonviolent. These are probably two of the most important ones. And when they are combined, they, that's where you get this violent, sacrificial religion that you can see in the Old Testament and that even the disciples, that one example, they wanted to, yeah, yeah let's just send fire from heaven and kill these people, right? So um, uh, let's see. A couple other examples of dissenting views, and the point here would be that 
you can find things in the scriptures in the Old Testament where people were changing their mind about what um, what was true in the world. Uh, for example, in Second Samuel, it says that God incited King David to sin and and do something uh, in a sinful way, and that same exact narrative. Um, you know, there are some scriptures uh, that the, the writers actually go through almost the same exact narrative. You can say, oh, he's talking about what someone else was talking about, but he's got a slightly different view of it. And so that same story is retold in First Chronicles. And First Chronicles says, no, God didn't incite King David. Satan incited King David to sin. So there's a difference. And you can see when you read the whole Old Testament, that that begins to be a change in the way people begin to view how where sin comes from or whatever. So remember I said in earlier in the Joshua narrative, uh, it said that God hardened the hearts of people uh, and made them wage war against the Israelites. It says that in the Egypt narrative, God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh and made him do these terrible things. And now we're starting to see in First Chronicles the first sign that people were rejecting that and saying, no, God didn't do it. God didn't incite people to sin or harden their hearts. Satan did. And then there's a new way of explaining it. And um, not that Satan is the uh, total answer or the conclusion that people come to, but it's better. it's a lot better to... To, to say that Satan uh, caused evil, then God caused the evil, because, of course, that makes us God into be a schizophrenic God uh, who needs therapy. So, anyways, um, so uh, I think um, those kinds of examples are good examples of how uh, uh, there's a development of the explanation of where sin and evil come from. Uh, in this case, um, and that developed over the years, and uh, and people began to change their views as they continued to write the scriptures. Um, again, we can see that clearly in the uh, Old Testament narratives and the violent narratives, and then the Jesus narratives. Um, uh, the another and very interesting thing that you see is um, a scapegoating narrative. And you can read this in um, Joshua 7 and Numbers 25 is a good example. And this narrative combines the sacrifice and violence examples. um, And like I said, makes violent sacrificial religion. One example is a man named Achan in Joshua chapter 7. He's disobedient to God during one of the attacks on the Canaanite cities. And God becomes angry and is only appeased when Achan, even after he confesses his sin, by the way, is stoned and burned along with his innocent sons and daughters. <laughs> Just read Joshua 7, you'll know what I'm talking about. So there's the view of violent human sacrifice appeases an angry God. Um, and another story, uh, the Israelites had aligned with pagan idolatry and they were um, there was a tribe that practiced fertility rites or shrine prostitution. Uh, that is, they appeased their god by having sex with temple prostitutes. Sounds pretty bizarre, but it's actually pretty common in 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 antiquity, and is referred to many times in the Bible. And so God is angry and calls for a violent retribution against this disobedience. Um, this is the one in Numbers twenty five. Uh, an Israelite man um, hooks up with one of these women, brings her into his tent, and a man named Phineas, it says he is zealous for the honor of God, and he goes into the tent and impales both the man and the woman with a spear. He becomes judge, jury, and executioner all in one, and then that man becomes a hero, and it says clearly that God's anger is appeased. So there's the scapegoating narrative. This also contradicted Jesus and Paul. Um, you know, when they brought a, a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, uh, and they said the Torah commands us to stone her, he he said no. You know, he he uh, taught that uh, you should be merciful 
and no one can really judge anyone because all of us um, uh, have sins. So there are many other examples of this trajectory of, uh, I, I think it's a trajectory of moral development. Um, and they're texts that ultimately reinterpret what God desires. Uh, so here we can see um, when we, when we uh, compare what Jesus and Paul taught to these other narratives in, in some of the Old Testament passages. So what can we conclude from this? What can we learn from these things? Um, uh, I think the contradictions we see in these examples uh, help us learn um, the superiority of the loving, merciful, nonviolent narrative um, and how embracing this ethic and rejecting the other violent narrative can help our society and world. Um, what I've concluded as I as I came out of evangelicalism and kind of evaluated it in a new light was that evangelical theology um, does not really follow the ethics of Jesus. Um, love for enemy, kindness toward the ungrateful and wicked. I mean, they say they do, but they actually mix that ethic with the violent character of God in these other narratives. And so that's what's really the biggest lesson. Let's not mix uh, modern religion with these violent narratives. It's time to get over that um, uh, and stop believing that God uh, is re- was really has that character that he actually could commit genocide. Uh, when you do that, you end up with a two-faced God, one loving and one unloving, one merciful, um, one showing mercy, but one not um, showing and one showing no mercy. One nonviolent and one retributive and violent. So uh, there's the schizophrenia. There's the need for therapy. I mean, this God is just messed up. Um, And so the evangelicals and conservative Christians and other religions too, uh, you know, uh, uh, conservative Islam, for example, they still, they also believe in this this two-faced God. So religion has a problem with this and it needs to be addressed um, but evangelicals, uh, their belief in things like hell, eternal damnation, a retributive return of Christ, and final judgment, um, capital punishment, justifying war, justifying torture. Remember, during the Iraq War, um, evangelicals, uh, 62% of them, according to polls, supported the Bush Doctrine, uh, which was basically justifying torture, uh, um, uh, starting a war with Iraq, even though they hadn't attacked us, etc. Uh, uh, they actually wrote a um, a just war memo that uh, that they gave to to Bush, uh, some of the evangelical leaders, to um, you know help him to <laughs> accept the fact that he should go to war. Um, uh, so their acceptance, and this is the reason why they accept this, and they is because, in my mind, they still insist that the violent, retributive narratives in the books that, are, uh, like Deuteronomy, Numbers, Joshua, and 1 Samuel, they still believe that those narratives are the Word of God. Um, and this completely betrays their claim to the love of Jesus. Um, so there's many other uh, ways that evangelicals um, do this. Um, Calvinism is another example the belief that God chooses who he saves and damns, uh, the belief in limited atonement, um, you know, basically God doesn't want to save everyone, only limited uh, people, um, that salvation is limited to only certain individuals. Um, this, too, also portrays the universal enemy love that Jesus taught. So there's all kinds of contradictions like this, and uh, what we can take away is how to... Um, separate those contradictions and move beyond the violent narratives and come up with a, uh, a historically based way of looking at the teachings of Jesus that actually have some inspirational things that uh, our society can learn from. So enough said. Um, that is the fruit of trying to harmonize the Bible into one unified, consistent word of God. But realizing the Bible takes us on a trajectory of dissenting views that we can recognize um, the more superior views and we are free to reject the bad and the ugly views 
This helps us make sense of the Bible and its place in helping us forge a way of life that is hopeful, restorative, and ultimately nonviolent for the world. So, um, that was a long one. Um, hopefully it was, uh, insightful for you. Um, just to let you know that in my next couple podcasts, I'm going to be trying to do some more interviews. I would like to interview Michael Harden, um, who's written some very good books and has some good, uh, uh, study on Rene Girard and, uh, et cetera. Um, also I would like to interview Kathy Escobar, um, who wrote the book Faith Shift. I've had a little bit of engagement with both of these people, and hopefully I'll be able to get them on the podcast. So until then, uh, have a good one, and um, uh, drink responsibly. The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.